morning. It's great to be able to preach and feel a little bit like I haven't ridden in the saddle for a while, so if I'm a bit rusty, you'll have to forgive me, all right? But I want to start this morning by just uh, reading to you a testimony which I found very, very powerful and amazing. And Richard is here this morning, Richard Foster. Where are you, Rich? There he is there. And uh, I've asked him if I could read this because this is really his story. He sent it to me this week, and um, I'm going to sh- it's just uh, the story of what God's done in his life. It's just called My Salvation. Wonderful that God saves people, <laughs> people that are not expecting anything from him, and he just, he just reaches into their life, and he saves them. Isn't that amazing? That's the, that's the gospel. That is what we sang about this morning, this outrageous gospel that transforms wicked people into pure people. Man, that is incredible. Let's, let's never stop enjoying the stories of salvation. And we're going to put this up on the webpage, and I want to ask that you would take it and encourage other people with it, because it's an amazing testimony. This is the story of salvation, but it's also a testament to the beautiful work that the Lord does when saving people. Until a short number of months ago, I would not have set foot in a church. The only times I ever had, trip, had before were for weddings, christenings, funerals, and some trips. I was raised in a non-religious family. Saying my parents are atheists is probably a bit far, but they certainly never made me or my brother go to church, or, as far as I know, have willingly attended a service once they were old enough to choose. In my school years, I had a massive interest in science. I loved reading about paleontology, geology, biology. And for this reason, I didn't believe in God, Jesus, the Bible, heaven, hell, none of it. There was no glorious afterlife. You simply die and decompose in a box. I acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was real, a real person, and no doubt a great teacher who died for his beliefs. But the Son of God? No. Conceived to a virgin? Not possible. And the resurrection? Absurd. So that paints a pretty clear picture about my views at this time. My first experience came when I was 19, after my grandfather passed away. Myself and my family were at his side when it happened, and afterwards I wanted some space to collect my thoughts and found myself being drawn to a room. And the room was the hospice's chapel, and it was empty, and my eye looked on the crucifix, and within seconds I was praying to Jesus. Me? Praying? Anyway, my scientific brain quickly explained this as being overcome with grief. Although I dismissed it and it didn't change my views, the experience never left me. A few years later, I was on a holiday in Rome. There's a church at the top of the Spanish steps that contains many great pieces of art. And while inside, again I was drawn, this time to a sculpture of Jesus' body being taken down from the cross. And again, I felt an overwhelming need to pray. Once again, I believed I'd been caught up in the moment and I made the sign of the cross and left. And I know that these moments were where Jesus was reaching out for me to embrace him. A few years later, I was completely settled. I was doing well in the job I loved, was engaged to a girl that I was totally in love with. Within a few months, it came crashing down. Our relationship ended, and I was devastated. Although I put on a brave face, inside I was dying. I did not know pain like that existed. My job was the only thing that kept me going. And a couple of months later, that too came to an end. And that's when the real problems began. 
Depression is a term that's thrown around a lot, but I sank so deep into it, there were times I wondered if I could ever get out. I'm a private person and did not want to burden my friends or family with my problems, so I bottled it up inside and turned to the only thing I felt I could, alcohol. I turned to it a lot, and I became disgusted in myself for the amount I was drinking and made my depression even worse. And after a while, I was over my ex, had a new job, and was planning to go to university, but felt trapped. And as the weeks and the months passed, I was only getting worse, and yet I couldn't ask for help. I put on a brave face and act normal around other people, even though I felt so alone. I have a loving family and some of the greatest friends you could ever uh, possibly ask for. Yet one night I lay in bed in tears and wondered if the world would, risk, would miss me if I was gone. That's how bad it was. Quickly putting those thoughts aside, I began to look for other ways out. And at the time I was reading WWE wrestler Shawn Michaels' autobiography, and there was a section in there where he was explaining how he was suffering from de- depression, and one night he felt the Lord's presence and his depression went away. And things started getting better for him. I began to read about more people finding God and began to wish that would happen to me. Now, I easily could have gone to a church, but in fear of jumping on some sort of Christian bandwagon and still having my scientific brain in gear, I wouldn't go until I had a genuine experience. In brackets, forgetting the previous two that had obviously happened already. I would lay in bed and beg for God to come into my life. It didn't happen. So I thought at the time. So now I began to believe that even God did not want me. He had forsaken me, even though I had begged for his help. I cannot explain how alone I felt after that. Not even God loved or wanted me. God. Strangely, soon after I found the strength to start, and I started getting better. Within a few months, my depression cleared, and I wasn't getting urges to drink anymore, and couldn't control that. At the time, I didn't make any connections although it is obvious now what happened. The proudest day of my life so far came when, after, uh, a while after, when I finished my final exams. I managed to get battle all that and get my degree. I immediately began to think about the next step, and a master's was the obvious choice. My degree in history, my dissertation was written on Adolf Hitler, and while history was the obvious course of choice to take, I was beginning to find another figure from history interesting. That man was Jesus. So I decided to apply for a religious studies master's instead. I wanted to study the connection between history and Christianity and Jesus from a historical perspective. One one night towards the end of July this year, I was looking online at historical sites in Jerusalem. I had no idea that my life was about to change that night. I genuinely did not know it was possible to visit the cave where Jesus' body had been laid to rest and the site of the subsequent resurrection. And I thought it would be an amazing place for Christians to visit. So I went to bed shortly afterwards. Now, I need to explain that I wasn't thinking about Jesus, religion, God, Israel, or anything when I went to bed. I think it's important to stress that when I attempt to explain what happened next, I was actually in bed tired, and as I thought, I was debating turning on my PS3 to play FIFA. Then it happened. The Lord came into my life. It was an amazing moment. And I can't explain that this explanation will come nowhere near doing justice to what happened. I can't say how long it lasted. Sometimes I think it was an instant. 
Some, I think it went on, sometimes I think it went on for ages. But as I lay in bed, I became surrounded by a tremendous presence. I did, it didn't just surround me. It pulsated through me. Every cell of my body was buzzing. And one word, one five-letter name was flowing through me. The name was Jesus. I couldn't think, speak, or move. I was surrounded by the Lord's presence, and his name just kept resounding through my body. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The Lord had reached out for me. I was overwhelmed. I still am. I am in tears as I write this. I had such an amazing, beautiful moment with God. He reached out for me. I had been saved. My skeptic, scientific reign had been wiped away. My past was gone. And even when I think about it now, his name appears in my brain. At that point, I knew what happened. And the Lord planted me in me that I had been saved. And I knew that he had been with me all along. He had heard my cries. He gave me the strength to battle and overcome my demons. And he revealed himself in a way that I would understand the way that I wanted it to happen. I was convinced I was forsaken. Now I know that I'm loved. That's a feeling I can't put into words. I'm so grateful and humbled in him. I want to give my life to him now, dedicate my life to him. I recently watched Louis Louis Giglio's talk in uh, How Great Is Our God. He reveals the cell adhesion molecule called lemelin is in the shape of the cross. The molecules that hold our bodies together are in the shape of the cross. He then talks about God's promise to hold us together. When I saw this, I dropped to my knees, tears streaming down my face, and clutching my Bible, I was overwhelmed at this sight, as I knew that God had held me together through my bad times. He'd held me together. It's incredible. I now call myself a Christian. I walk with Jesus. I can feel his presence in my life. I've never felt so alive. After my moment of revelation, I felt an overwhelming need to attend Forest Town Church with whom I feel I'm connected to and my future somehow lies within it and I look forward to the journey, whatever it might be. And although I'm only starting my journey, I'm excited to see where it takes me until that day comes to take me to glory. It's amazing what God does in people's lives. You know what? I'm so old now, I don't, I'm too, I don't get embarrassed when I cry anymore. It doesn't matter. There's some things that will make you incredibly happy and you cry. It's a good thing. Anyway. Richard, I want, I, want to, I want to encourage you to just enjoy Richard's story and take it and ask him questions because all of your stories are just as wonderful, aren't they? That God reached into your life and changed you, transformed you, 
And I want to talk to you this morning, as I've been on leave now for a while, I feel like God spoke to me clearly about the journey of this church. And uh, I was, obviously, I've been thinking about a lot of things and thinking about my own life, thinking about my own call, thinking about this church, what's the future of this church, Lord? And uh, I came to a point of just saying to myself, what do I actually know about leadership? You know, because when you look back, you see some good things and then you see some bad things. And you think, well, that wasn't really all that good. <laughs> what do I know, really know about leadership? And I felt God just say a very simple thing to me. That leadership is really just taking people from here to there. That's all it is. It's just a journey. It's taking from people from where they are to where he wants them to be. From their present state of reality to a preferred future that he has for them. And that's the story of Rich's journey, that he was in a certain place and God is taking him to a preferred future. Your life is one journey where you are in the current reality of where you are now. And one day you will go to be with Jesus in glory. There's a, there's a journey for you that is your responsibility. It's your responsibility. My journey for my life is my responsibility. But there's a, there's a beautiful journey that we share in together. Now, I was just thinking, the Bible is full of stories of journeys. Moses was asked to take the people on a journey out of bondage, out of slavery, into the promised land. And Joshua was, to, was, was asked to take people on a journey. And he took the, the people fully into the promises that God had for them. David took the people on a journey. And his journey was about a kingdom. And eventually there was a kingdom that was established. And, and Jesus, really, his journey that we've all, we've all come into is the journey out of darkness into light. Isn't it? And that's what happens when we save. So I was just thinking and saying, Lord, what is the preferred future for this church? And I know we've been a study, studying Ephesians. What is the preferred future for this church? And uh, I felt God just give me Ephesians 3 verse 7. I want you to turn with me there. We're going to start there. We're going to go to look at the life of Gideon. And we're going to go to Ezekiel 37 as well. So those are the three portions of Scripture we're going to read this morning. But um, Father, I just pray that you'd help me now. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for your presence that we've already enjoyed. I thank you for the power of Richard's testimony, Lord. And I pray that you'd set others free this morning. I pray that you would reach into other people's hearts and lives and transform them by the power of your Spirit. Only you can do that, Father. Ah, these words are not going to do that, but your Spirit can do immeasurably, immeasurably more. So I just ask that you'd help me. I thank you for what you've given me, and I pray for grace to communicate it now. In Jesus' name. So what is the, pre what is the future? What is the dream for this church? And um, Ezekiel 3 verse, uh, Ephesians 3 verse 7 says this. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is plain, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Isn't that a beautiful picture? 
It's a picture of the church. And I'm not just talking about this local church. I'm talking about the church universal. That through the church, through you, priests, living your lives, and allowing God to transform you from the inside out, and journeying with your husband or your wife, and bringing up your kids, and, and laboring some for Pharaoh at the city, laboring for money through that journey, you as the church make known to powers and principalities and kings and rulers and heavenly places, you make known the manifold wisdom of God to the world. Man, I don't know about you, I don't fully understand that, but that's what the scripture says. That as the church, that is what we do. We make known to the rulers and powers and principalities the awesomeness of God's manifold wisdom, His multifaceted wisdom that touches every area of, of life. That's the dream that God has for His church. What's the dream for this church? Well, I, I pray this with all of my heart, that this church will increasingly become a transforming community. A transforming community. Not by working hard just out of the gifts that we have, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us that transforms people from the inside out. And this community increasingly becomes a vibrant, happy, worshipping Generous, faithful, faithful, prayerful, outward-looking church of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that are saved out of darkness into light. Where many are healed, where many marriages are completely restored and changed, marriages that are on the brink of disaster are drawn back because of the power of the cross. A church that impacts the community, that ministers to the poor. This is the gospel. We have to minister to the poor. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I am absolutely convinced that this community has to be reaching into the poorest communities of the world. I, I don't know how it's going to happen, but we're on a journey. And this preach really this morning is an invitation for all of you to come on a journey. I don't know what it's going to look like. I know something, I know we preach the gospel, I know we need to do some things, but how the journey works out, I don't fully know. It is a walk by the Spirit. But I know that God loves the poor. I know that God loves His community. I know that the gospel is, is what needs to be preached to transform communities in a way that is radical, transform marriages in a way that is radical. It's the gospel that does that. So how then, if that's the dream, how do we get there? How do we get from here to there? Well, I felt God speak to me about three chapters, and I just want to briefly outline them quickly. The first chapter was planting this church. The first chapter started that first meeting where four or five of us gathered in our little house in Caspi Park, and we began to pray, and we began to seek God, and we began to say, Lord, you've got placed a dream in our hearts to do something. And we started walking. Quite soon after that, various people joined, and Mike and Kath were part of that early band of brothers, and so was Ed and Kath, Janot, and different people, and God added, and God added. And over the years, some have come, some have gone, but there's still this dream in our hearts that this community would, would be used to impact this city and this nation. And so that was the first chapter, planting the church, settling in the community. And part of the first chapter was buying this facility. And this facility has always been a tool for the task. It's, all, it's not an end in itself. 
We're not here to, uh, with all due respect to Petru, we're not here to put up stained glass windows that last for a thousand years. That's not what we want to do. This church has been birthed to reach the community. That's the heart. And then I, I felt God say there was a second chapter, and the second chapter has been the last two or three years. And this has been an amazing time of transition for this church. Why? Because we've left a missional theology, a, a missional uh, mindset of going, 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 doing, 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 coming back to a sense of the gospel taking root in us. And our theology has been radically impacted. We're trying to lead the church in a different way, a much more open-handed, inclusive way. And God has also given us new relationships. We had some very definite relationships in the, old, in the first chapter, and now there's some new relationships. And I wanted to say to you that next year, Artie Kendall and Michael Eaton will be here in April, for the first week of April. I want to encourage you to really set aside that time and come and be, I can't think of no, no two wiser and more gifted fathers in the faith that I would like to sit under their ministry. I want to encourage you. Mike Pilavachi is going to be coming again in, in March. Uh, he's going to be either the third or fourth week of, of, of March. Put that in your diary. We have wonderful privilege of having Nick in the church. We've, um, we've uh, started forming a relationship with Greg Haslam. And for those of you that didn't uh, sit under his ministry, all that stuff is available. And Heinz was here with us last week. And Chris Lane is going to come again this year from the vineyard. There are new relationships that God is letting our hearts as a church community. We are not in isolation. All right? That was part of the second chapter. Now the third chapter, I feel this. And we are exploring these things as a leadership team. And uh, I gave some things to the guys during the week that we are going to pray into because I don't fully understand all of this. But I know that I've come back from this time of holiday personally feeling a, a, a sense of renewed calling in my life and confirmation of the call that God has for me. And I, I, I'm confident of that. And I know that in this third season, many of your things that have lain dormant in your life are going to be birthed again. I feel like as I preach this morning, you'll see what I mean. This is a new season of building and recapturing and advancing, this third chapter. I feel like God said to me, it's time to build community based on gospel revelation. Not community around missionalism, not community around doing good stuff, although we do good stuff when the gospel takes root in us, but community around the gospel, with the gospel at the center, with the good news of Jesus at the center. That's what we build around, first and foremost, is this good news of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Amen? And I do feel that we can't build biblical community without the gospel being at the center of everything. So, the last thing I want to say, just in a very general sense about this third chapter, is that I do feel it's a time to put our foot down. I do feel it's a time as a church to start doing mighty exploits for God, but not out of trying hard, just out of the grace of God flowing out of us. And as the grace of God flows out of you, and you just live your life, the community will be impacted and transformed. I, I hadn't planned to say this, but... Um, we had, uh, when I built my little patio in the summer holiday, I met this guy, a Romanian guy called Lika. He's a wonderful man. And his wife came over, and uh, she can't speak a word of English. 
So it came time to settle for some of the work he'd done in my garden, and uh, he had in time now worked out that Helen used to be an English teacher. So he said, well, my wife needs to have English lessons. Why don't we just do a deal here, and don't pay me for, for the work I did. Just let your wife give my, my wife some lessons. So Helen's been doing that for a month or so now. You know what the amazing thing is? Now that she's been giving her lessons, uh, Suzanne says to her, you know, I've got some other friends that need to learn English. Could, could you teach them as well? See, for me, <laughs> that's the beauty of what God can do, isn't it? You don't have to try very hard sometimes because actually you just live your life. You just be who you are. You just exercise the gifts that you have and God will bring the people that he wants to you. I was, I'm getting distracted, but I was uh, listening to uh, Tim Keller talk, and he was talking about the need to plant churches. And you know what? We've come from a mindset that says you need to go to all the nations to plant churches. And you know what? I, I agree. We still need to do go to, the, go to the nations. But you know what he said, which I found fascinating? He said, all over the world, right now, about 8 million people are added to cities every year. 8 million people come into cities, various cities, all over the world. And cities are growing at an incredible, incredible, incredible rate. And all the people that are coming into cities are immigrants from all over the world. You know what? We live in one of the most cosmopolitan places on the face of the planet that is growing rapidly with immigrants from all over the world. And we've recently had the privilege of meeting some Romanians. I want to say that perhaps this church, perhaps we should be planting as many churches as we can into London. And the nations are coming to London anyway. You know, if you go to culture, a new culture, you have to learn a new language. It's going to take you 10 to 15 years. Just a thought. I'm not saying we mustn't go, but I'm saying let's do what we can here, now, in this community, and preach the good news of Jesus. Anyway, that was just a, a little addendum there. But I said to you last week uh, some, at some of you, that when I was in the game reserve, I had this amazing experience of coming upon a giraffe's skeleton, and it was bleached white by the sun, and it was an amazing thing to look at, and uh, it was, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely lifeless, and I felt God speak to me out of Ezekiel 37, and I want to give you five, six things this morning about the third chapter that I feel come out of this chapter of Ezekiel 37, so can you please turn with me there, and we're going to read together. You're right. I know that was a long introduction, but I will try and be maybe another 20 minutes. Is that okay? Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around amongst them, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? <laughs> and I answered, Oh Lord, you alone know. There's a wise man for you, right? Oh Lord, you, you, you alone know. And he said, Prophesy to the bones and say, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what God says to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. And you shall live, and I'll put sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh came upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they might live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Wow. Some of you have probably heard that that story many times, but it is absolutely incredible what Ezekiel sees. First thing I want to say, this third chapter that we are in now, it's a chapter of resurrection. It's a chapter of resurrection. Verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. This chapter we are in now is one of resurrecting vision, resurrecting hope, resurrecting dreams, resurrecting passion in us, his church, every single one of us as his church. And there's a landscape here in, in this first verse of dry bones. Man, I saw a couple of bones. It says the whole valley is full of bones. Perhaps you feel like your whole life is full of bones. I don't know. In the, in the history of this church, we've had a lot of battles in the last 10 years. And we've come through this transition. And it's been one where God has uprooted and torn down some things in order to replant and reestablish some things around the gospel of Jesus. I think it's been a beautiful process. It's been a, a great process. God reestablishing. And why does he do that? He does that for his glory. And Ezekiel 36, if you go to verse 25, it says this, I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and will cause you to walk in my ways what did Michael Eaton say Walk in the Spirit deliberately and you'll fulfill the law accidentally. That's what Ezekiel says. Just by the Spirit as we walk. So it's a time of resurrecting. And I want to say, I don't know what the dreams are for your life, but I came back and I said, I felt something of the dream in my own life had had died. And three months away, I felt God speak to me of my own life, my own dreams. And He's begun to rekindle them. And I came back and said to the other guys on Saturday, Mike, what is your dream for your life? Petri, what is your dream for your life? What is your dream? God wants to resurrect our dreams. He wants to bring them to life. He wants to speak to those dry bones where things have died. Just through the battle of life, they've died, and He wants to breathe. And as we speak the Word of God over our lives, He's going to bring life by His Spirit. I want to say to you, I'm convinced for many of you this morning, He's resurrecting dreams for you too. Secondly, it's a season, it's a chapter of knowing that God is absolutely sovereign. 
absolutely sovereign. My friends, that is the thing that brings sanity to my life, knowing that God is sovereign. That everything that has happened is because of his, he is allowed in his sovereignty. And uh, verse 3 we read already, it says, He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I, and I answered, Oh Lord, you know. I mean, he is a wise man, Ezekiel. I mean, he's, he's seeing death. He's seeing dryness. He's seeing no life. And then he says, No, Lord, you, you know. I trust in your sovereignty. You alone know. And perhaps with the credit crunch and the financial pressures, perhaps you feel like there are some things that are hopeless in your life. Well, I want to tell you that God can bring those things that are dead to life for you. Not just for me, but for you. He's always good. He's always kind. He's always faithful. He's full of grace and love. Ephesians 1, verse 17, which the guys have been preaching through. Just reminded of that portion as I was thinking about this. It said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened and opened. I pray that for every single person in this church, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and opened. You would see what God can do. You would not see the dry bones right now, that you would see with faith, that you would find faith for your life, that God can do much in you, that God wants to do much through you, but it's by the power of His Spirit as you see Him. The riches of the glorious inheritance in His saints, and what immeasurably great, what is the measurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He's worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, or power, or dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. He gave him his head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Resurrection time. Thirdly, this new chapter, third chapter, is a chapter of rebuilding. It's a chapter of rebuilding. And the verse 8 says, as he prophesied, there's this rattling sound and all the bones come together and the sinews are added. Skin covers them. See, for me, it is a season, it is a chapter of rebuilding, but this is the difference. We're building with a new heart. <laughs> We're building with a new spirit. We're building with the gospel. We're building with a different goal in mind. This is a season of building. I feel like, for me, I've said this to the other guys, and, and I've said it to Helen many times in our private conversation, I feel like, the church, I feel like we are replanting this church. It's this leadership team. We re, re, we're replanting this church. And, I, and when I first thought that, I, I thought, jeez, that's not very good. You mean... After 10 years, we've got to replant this church. It's, it's everything we've done useless, God. And then I read a thing of Tim Keller, which really, really encouraged me. He said this, they replanted their church every two years. And what he was trying to say is that as the gospel, the revelation of the gospel, increasingly becomes real to you and becomes real in your life in deeper levels, in deeper ways, you have to replant. Why? Why? Because God is doing new things. And He's showing you different stuff. 
and you have to respond by the Spirit, and so you are always in this process of replanting the gospel in your life, and that is expressed in the church. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, man, I thought, yes, I can. That's, that's good news. Replanting. And so I want to say this is a season of replanting. It's a season of rebuilding. And I want to encourage you in your own life that as the gospel takes root more and more fully in you, that you would reevaluate your marriage and you would reevaluate your parenting and you would reevaluate how you love other people and how you speak about other people as the gospel takes root in you and produces fruit in you, as the grace of God changes you. Amen? I, I, I came back from my time away just rejoicing in my wife and my kids. And I've, I've come to a point saying, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be different. I'm going to change how I parent, how I love my boys, how I love my wife. Because you've spoken to me and your gospel is taking root in me deeper. And it's the same for all of us. Let this be a season of rebuilding. It's also a chapter of resuscitation. That's a nice word, isn't it? Resuscitation. When you can't breathe. And what does it say? It says Ezekiel prophesies breath to these bones and these bodies. And the Hebrew word there is ruach. It's the life of God. It's the life of God that comes as he speaks the word of God. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say to Ezekiel, lay your hands and pray for the Holy Spirit to come into these bones. He could have done that. You know, through you, life is going to be imparted. He doesn't say that. He just says, you simply speak and preach to these bones. And as you preach to these bones, as you preach my word to these bones, my spirit will come. You know why I like that? Because it takes all the emphasis off the minister. But nothing to do with the, the minister. It comes to do with the word that the minister speaks. As long as the, the word is the word of God, life will come. Wherever the word is preached, life will come by the spirit. Spiritual life will come as the word is faithfully preached. And I had this uh, great encouragement this morning, not this morning, this week, as I was reading my devotions. Uh, I use Spurgeon. I think I would recommend that to anybody, but one of the readings was 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And it said this, For my weakness is made perfect in his strength. Any of you feel weak? I feel weak all the time. I've never been more aware of my own weakness of my own lack. And when you're in your 20s, you think you're quite invincible. You think your father's a total bore, that he doesn't know anything. How could he possibly have done, made some of the mistakes that he did in his life? Maybe that's just me. And now I'm 46, and I'm looking back on my own life and saying, you are weak, man. But you know what? In my weakness, his strength is made perfect. Isn't that beautiful? And Spurgeon says this, primary qualification for serving God with any amount of success for doing God's work well and triumphantly is a sense of your own weakness. When God's warriors march into battle strong in their own might and when they boast, I know that I'll conquer my right arm and my concrete sword will get me to victory, defeat is not far off. God won't go with that man who marches in his own strength. He who reckons on victory has reckoned wrongly for it's not by might, it's not by power. That's my spirit, says the Lord. They who, go, they, they who go forth to fight, boasting of their prowess, will return with their banners trailing in the dust and their armor stained with disgrace. Those who serve, serve God must serve Him in his, in his way and in His strength 
or he will never accept their service. The river of God is full of water, but not one drop of it flows from earthly springs. God will have no strength used in his battles, but the strength which he himself imparts. Are you mourning over your own weakness? Well, take courage, for there must be a consciousness of weakness before the Lord will give you victory. Your, emp- your emptiness is but the preparation for you being filled. and You're casting down, but the making ready for you to be lifted up. Doesn't that encourage you? For everyone who feels weak, oh, that's such an encouragement to me. It's a, this next point is this. It's a chapter of recreation. It says, The breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, and they were exceedingly great army. God takes what is dead, lifeless, He recreates it, and, he, and, he, and what is birthed is something completely new. It's, it's nothing like it was in the past. It's completely transformed. And this mighty army stands where there were just bones. And I want to say to you that I'm absolutely confident, not in anything that I'm saying, but in God, that when we look back in a year's time, you're not going to recognize this community. I prophesy that. I do. There are going to be completely new faces in this community. Yes, not... Hopefully... Hopefully the old ones will still be here. Good, my darling. Yes, thank you for reminding me of that. Of course, I'm not saying, I'm saying there's gonna, God is going to add people who are being saved. I'm confident, absolutely confident that we're going to see this year amazing things and it's going to transform how this church looks, functions, what it aims at, what it's living for, completely transformed. Why? Because God recreates everything and he's recreating this church. And then lastly, I want to say, this third chapter is a chapter of speaking the Word of God. And as uh, I've already said, as Ezekiel speaks, the life of the Spirit comes and God accomplishes His purpose. And God says, I've spoken and I will do it. And that is for the praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. Can you give me another five minutes? Okay? All right. I also felt God speak to me a little bit out of the life of Gideon, and this is my final point, which kind of follows on in terms of this chapter. I feel like it's a chapter of taking back what has been stolen by the devil. It's a chapter of taking back what has been stolen. So can you go with me to Gideon, please, Uh, which is found, the story of Gideon is found in Judges chapter 6. I'm going to make reference to chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then we're going to have some coffee. What? an amazing story. It's a fascinating story. I'm just going to read the half of chapter 6 and make some comments, all right? When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, uh, sorry, chapter 6, I'm not sure where I'm starting. Um, verse 7, thank you. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, and the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Bezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. If you ever want a picture of absolute disaster, there it is. 
beating wheat in a wine press. It's like you're not even using the right implement to do what you're doing because you're so afraid of this marauding tribe, all right? And so the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, or some translations say, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, (laughs) if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonderful deeds that our Father encountered to us, recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. Isn't it just like God to avoid the question? He doesn't answer the question, completely ignores the question. And he just says, No, Gideon, you go in the might that I've given you. Right? Didn't I send you? And he says again, Oh, please, Lord. Wani, wani, wani. How can I save Israel? And he said to him, My clan is the weakness in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm really not the guy. That's basically what he's saying. I ain't your man, God. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. <laughs> and you will strike the Midianites as one man. And then he said, If I found favor in your eyes, Please show me a sign. He's still a little nervous. Still needs some help to hear this call that God has. So what's the state of mind of these people in Israel right now? Well, the state of mind is they are harassed. They are browbeaten. They are intimidated. They have retreated into their caves. And they're just licking their wounds in their caves. And we meet Gideon, like I said, this mighty warrior in a wine press. Not even pressing grapes. Not even pressing the fruit of the land. But threshing wheat, hiding. And the nation had lost its, its sense of identity. And why is that? Because it says quite plainly that they started to follow other gods. And I, I was just thinking about this. You know, they're worshiping the Baals. And so God sends the Midianites to drive them back to himself. I was, I'm convinced of the sovereignty of God. And I had this thought. How many of us in our lives have things that we think are Midianites to us and are a complete pain in our lives and are we crying out to God. Well, perhaps we haven't been crying out to God. That's my point. These things are Midianites in our lives and God has allowed them in His sovereignty and we think think that they're from the devil. They're actually from God. Why? Because our hearts have been after other idols and all He's saying is, why don't you come back to me? I'll bring deliverance for you. But first, just come back to me. I'm calling you. Come back to me. Not your faith in your money or your power, or your intellect, or your social skills, or anything. Just put all your eggs in my basket. Come back to me. So, verse 12, we just read Gideon says, why does this happen? God doesn't answer him. He just says, you go. I've called you. Rise up, mighty man. And then we read on, it says, uh, in verse 27, that Gideon takes ten servants, and did it the, Lord's to- the Lord had told him, but he does it at night. He tears down these altars of Baal, and in the morning the people are very upset. My point is this, simply out of, out of that little section. I feel like God wants us to continue to tear down the idols in our lives that obscure the gospel. I want to ask you in this third chapter that you would be radically committed to that in your life. Because there are, I've seen there are many idols in my life. 
And God, as his gospel comes, he tears down those idols. I want to ask you, as a believing community, as I'm encouraging you and asking you to join on this journey, that you'll be committed, together with us, all of us who are part of this church, to tear down every idol that exalts itself above the name of Jesus and his gospel in our life. It's a radical thing. So think carefully. I'm not being light. I'm not being flippant. It's a radical thing to pray. God, tear down everything in my life that obscures Jesus. That's what he started to do. He started to tear down those false idols, success, money, false gospels of power, false gospels of ministry even, that the gospel take fully root. So then in chapter 7, I just want to make a couple of comments and then I'm finished. In verse 15, we read this amazing thing that they're about to go into battle and this guy has a dream. And uh, you know the story that actually what happens is that this great army of 22,000, Gideon says to them, any of you afraid to fight, please leave right now. And most of them leave. (laughs) The whole army dissipates. And then God whittles it down further because they're drinking at the brook and God says to Midian, the, uh, God says to Gideon, the ones that drink like this, don't choose them. The ones that lap like a dog, don't choose them. And so eventually this army is reduced to 300. Take on the Midianites. 300. And so this guy has a dream and he comes to Gideon and I'm in verse about verse 15. And it says, uh, as, as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian to your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three, into three companies and he put trumpets in the hands of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. For heaven's sake, what kind of an army is that? Going into battle with a trumpet and a torch and a jar. What is that? <laughs> I mean, don't you find that funny? Okay, well, it's me, but I think that's amazing. No, we're going to defeat these hordes, and we're going to do it with a trumpet and a jar and a torch. That's how we're going to do it. <laughs> and look at me and do it. And then he says, um, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come into the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all that are with me, blow the trumpet, and on every side of the camp shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 100 men were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp, and the beginning of the middle watch just as they had set the watch and they blew their trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and the right hands the trumpets and they cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon and every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled when they blew the 300 trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled as far as Bethshitta towards Jericho, as far as the border of Abel, Malah and Tabath. And by the men of Israel were called out from Natali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Man, this is an amazing, ridiculous victory. Don't you think it's just wonderful? It's completely ridiculous what God does. This army is weak. It's only 300. It's the most unusual army. It's like musicians in this army, trumpet players. I mean, who can do anything with musicians? I'm just teasing, but anyway. This most unusual army goes into battle and there are three things, the trumpet, the jar, and the torch. And I feel like they are three weapons for us. The trumpet. What is the trumpet? Always speaks of the prophetic voice. It always speaks of praise in the Bible. It always speaks of declaring the word of God when you blow the trumpet. It's like rallying people to the word. 
and you speak speak the word. And I want to say it speaks of worship. It speaks of, it speaks of singing. I realize this. When you stop singing in your life, you've stopped dreaming. You don't sing anymore in the kitchen or in the shower. I want to encourage you to find your dream again. Because <laughs> that's why you sing. Because you're living for something else. You're not living for what you just see now. We've stopped dreaming when we've stopped singing. We sing with joy about what's to come. We sing of victory. We sing of love. We sing of what we can't yet see. That's why we sing. That's why the trumpet blasts. I want to say in this new chapter, let the trumpet be used in your life. Speak the word of God. Sing the word of God. Declare the promises of God over your life, over this community. Right? Secondly, jars are broken. Well, I just think the jars speak of old ways of thinking, old paradigms in our minds that need to be shattered old things that need to die. I want to encourage you, every religious mold in your life, every old way of thinking, break it. Allow God to break it by the power of His Spirit. That's for this new season. Torch, thirdly. The torch speaks of bringing glory to God in the world through our lives, of being a light for Him. That's what a torch speaks of. And I want to give you three little things that I felt God speak to me about in terms of how we're going to bring Him glory. First of all is this, through holiness in our lives. Holiness in our relationships. What do I mean by that? Well, in our private speech, in our bedroom speech. How do you speak about others at home when it's just you and your wife? What is the, what is the bedroom converse, conversation? Is it honoring of other people? See, what we do in private, God sees and becomes public anyway. So I want to say for this new chapter, one of the things I, I'm trusting God for is holiness in relationships. That when we speak to each other and we love on each other, it, what we say is what we say. And there's nothing else happening in the bedroom in private. Amen? Holiness in relationships. No place for grumbling about each other. No place for that kind of stuff. We work together as a team, centered around the gospel, breaking open the new things that God has for us. Secondly, covenantal love. That our love for each other would be expressed in grace, and honesty, and compassion for each other. Truly. Thirdly, generosity. That's how we're going to be a torch to the world. Generosity. We sow outrageously to others. We sow in every area of our lives that we would give ourselves away. Give yourself away. Give yourself away. Don't. God has given you amazing gifts and talents. Give those away to other people. Your time, your talent, your treasure, your finances. Freely give into the lives of others. That's the third chapter. That we truly would be other centered. Amen.